internet friends, and welcome to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast by opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your life in that order. That's right. Andy! Hi! Y'all can't see this, but like, oh my god, Andy, you're like sitting across from me right now. We're like a foot away from each other for the first time. Well, like, it's, let's be fair, it's closer than, like, we're, our faces are touching right now. <laughs> like, it's very intimate and lovely. There's tea. Yes, delightful tea. Uh, we're in Atlanta. You were, um, we are, for those listeners who remember a few episodes back when I was recording from Atlanta, mm-hmm. Andy and I are both here in that exact same house visiting our lovely friends, and yeah. uh, they are off gallivanting and having an enjoyable time out in the city, and we decided to pack our asses uh, up in here and record a podcast. It was too good of an opportunity to let slip through my fingers. <laughs> yeah, we're using all of his equipment, too, because it's the nice equipment, and yeah. he's got to edit it anyway, So, and I didn't want to set anything up. There you go. There's yeah. a better reason. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, how are you doing, man? We got uh, we got John Mulaney level drunk last night. You guys got John Mulaney level yeah, drunk, that's like because here's the thing: we were staying at an Airbnb 15 minutes away, so we had to be good enough to drive back. Granted, we drove back like and passed out, but you know, Stephanie and I were up at like 8:30, I think. <laughs> we were just like, okay, we're awake now, like, uh, okay. And we just, like, we took our time getting ready. We all had a nice breakfast, and it was delightful. Now, when you all rolled up to breakfast, I was sitting here thinking, oh, okay, they're kind of sluggish. Is everyone hungover? Are all of you hungover? Everyone was hungover to varying degrees. Those of us who did not have to leave the uh, drinking rooms. Well, this evening we're staying here, so apparently, like, it's going to be round two, and Alex and Stephanie are joining in. <laughs> like, uh, what round of Marvel vs. Capcom is that, where people just, like, is, am I, do I have this right? Like, uh, I think you're talking about, like, an assist, but I, I actually think this is more like an 80s horror film. This is going to be, you know, drunk to the drunkening. Okay, so it's like an 80s horror sequel where, like, the character who got name dropped a couple times in the first movie as like the killer's like nemeses <laughs> suddenly show up halfway through the sequel and the, and they're sitting here going like it's you person with dramatic name and we show up with like bandoliers of ammo across our torsos and we're just sitting here thinking you're just a bunch of kids <laughs> you don't have a chance out here they were kids man they were kids oh if only our, like our monsters are just a bottle of tequila, apparently. But hey, I don't know about you. That's pretty terrifying. Oh, sweetie, <laughs> tequila is my bad liquor. Oh, sweetie. <laughs> Speaking of tequila, okay, uh, this is a couple of episodes in for sure, and it's been a while since we've gotten into the premise. Uh, here on Love Hate Relationship, we talk about something we love, then we talk about something we hate, and then we talk about a relationship question. So. Tequila brings us to this week's love. Oh, that was actually a delightful segue. Yeah. Good job to me bringing up tequila. (laughs) Yeah. So, listeners, you'll find out uh, that our hate is going to be fairly involved and big. And that was Andy's selection. Given that, I decided that I'm take this opportunity with a love to do a little bit of a pivot. I want to go off of a very simple, very somewhat, no, I wouldn't call it a narrow topic, but, like, a very specific topic with a very personal grounding to me. Also, I've really been wanting to start talking about food, 
on this podcast because I, I, I have a relationship with food. So on today's love portion uh, for this wonderful episode of Love Hate Relationship, I want to talk about my favorite food. Okay. Burritos. Yes. All right. You are very excited, young I man. I am very excited. I don't know anybody who doesn't love burritos. Uh, actually, funny enough, I will get into that, but I do know somebody who doesn't. Okay. Um, but for context, burritos are my absolute favorite food. You know what a burrito is. It's your standard Mexican fare ingredients. It's your, you know, your tomatoes, your onions, your peppers, your meat if you're so inclined, your yep. beans, your cheese if you're so inclined, maybe some rice, etc., and seasonings all rolled up in a closed tortilla. If you don't know what a burrito is, we are fascinated by you. Please write in. I want to know what else you don't know. Like, we won't make fun of you. We just want to know everything about you. <laughs> so... To kind of entry into this, uh, I, I, I assume that from what I can tell with our audience, most of them are, you know, fairly up on cultural aspects. But for those of you who don't know, I am of Colombian extraction. Anyone who thinks, oh, okay, he's Colombian, he must, of course, have grown up eating burritos. Educate yourself. <laughs> because that's racist. Colombians are not big. Like, burritos are not part of Colombian culture at all. And in fact... Andy, you mentioned not knowing anyone who doesn't like burritos. I'll tell you right now. My mother hates Mexican food. Okay. Loathes it. Despises it. It's my favorite kind of food. Even more than Colombian food. But, like, my mother hates it. She calls it greasy. Like, she despises it. And, I, and, and honestly, the first burritos that I ever ate were these, like, cheap... I think BJ's or Sam's Club yeah. microwave oh, ones oh, that my, yeah. I'm pretty sure my dad had a coupon for, and my dad was constantly, I, my dad's not a survivalist, but my dad is a, well, at some point things are going to be shitty and we won't be able to have time to make a delicious, nutritious dinner. So let's just get some stuff in the freezer that we can warm up without a lot of effort for when that will inevitably happen. So I think he got some like coupon burritos from Sam's Club. Oh, and those were the first burritos I ever ate, which, you know, that was like, Whatever to me, as a kid. Microwave gas station bean burrito doesn't get any better than this. Now, I came to enjoy getting them while eating out when I was an adult, and particularly about four years ago when I went vegetarian and I moved to New Jersey from Florida, away from my parents, away from my family, and I was officially, like, this was the first time I was on my own, really taking care of myself. My parents did a good job teaching me how to do a lot of this stuff. Like, I knew how to cook. Good on them. Like, my mom started teaching me how to cook when I was, like, 10 years old, and, like, I just hung out in the kitchen and picked stuff up. Like, I knew how all this stuff worked. I got really into making burritos because they were something I could experiment with. They were something I could easily make vegetarian. They were incredibly potable. Like, I could take them with me anywhere I went. Andy, you seem to find it amusing because in our notes, I sent over... There's a story for me where when I moved from New Jersey to North Carolina, uh, Camden, New Jersey to Asheville, that is a 17 and a half hour drive. And I basically loaded up my car with everything I could, possibly damaging the suspension. I'm still not 100% sure. The car still runs. It's a Toyota. Oh, man. Yeah, it'll survive nuclear holocaust. For this 17 and a half hour trip, I made a sack of burritos. <laughs> Why is that funny? Just, I just, I'm... 
because you've you've established something here that is now the classification for numerous burritos a sack of burritos you're gonna have a a herd of antelope a murder of crows a sack of burritos i I feel like you're picturing like one of those money bag cartoon bags that would have a dollar sign instead it's got like a sombrero on it (laughs) or like a mexican flag no disrespect to my Mexican friends. I've got a lot of them. They're wonderful people, but like, damn, a sack of burritos. I mean, and just the mental image of you at the wheel and and sitting in shotgun is this open bag of of like unwrapped burritos. No, they were all wrapped in tinfoil. Okay, okay. Yeah, not, paint, paint the picture for I me. I was not messy about it, but like... Yeah, there was a very, very large plastic bag. Now, when I say plastic bag, you're probably picturing one of those little Winn-Dixie bags. No, like this was one of those giant-sized bags filled with various burritos, all individually wrapped. I made some breakfast burritos. Good, I made good. some lunchy burritos. Like, I, I made a point of this. I had a variety to work with, and I drove for 17 and a half hours straight. Stopping for gas and the bathroom, and just I get I get munchy, grab a burrito, get munchy, grab a burrito, get munchy, grab a burrito, stop and take a piss, eat a burrito, drive, munchy, eat a burrito. Like that is just such a delightful mental image. Just like not even taking a hand off the wheel, not taking your eyes off the wheel, just reaching over, grabbing a burrito and and chomping down on it. I don't know, that makes me laugh. <laughs> You're basically uh, like Popeye's friend Wimpy, only instead of hamburgers, it's burritos. Yeah, no, I did. I mean, that's that's a delightful image, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I love. I actually have a soft spot for Wimpy. I think he's. I think he's truly a horrible character, but I kind of love him. That whole. I'd gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. I don't know. There's something funny about that. Oh, I love it. I'd gladly pay you manana for a burrito today. And now we have our ethnic Popeye spinoff ready to go. Ethnic Popeye spinoff. I mean, I'd fuck with that. I think it's translatable. Yeah, sure. No, that's perfect. So I do want to explore this a a, a bit with you because as I think most of our audience knows by now, and if they don't, you are vegetarian. Yes. So uh, clearly, you know, a burrito is not impossible to make without meat. Very easy, but, actually. Sure, sure, sure. But just I like as someone who's not a vegetarian, and I was even speaking uh, about this with uh, our friend Chris, and he his mind went the same place I did. You know, like shredded pork, chicken, ground beef, whatever. That's like that's that's a staple. That's part of it. Mm-hmm. So you you're, you're talking about how it's so easy to make a vegan burrito or a vegetarian burrito, mm-hmm. and I want to explore that a little bit more. Okay. Are you are you leading me into the thing that I sent you and you were like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Like, okay. So, listeners, I sent Andy my recipe for a vegan burrito. Uh, now, I'll include this in the show notes because I feel like it deserves to be immortalized. But I'll very quickly read it off for you. Um, if you need to rewind anything like that, you feel free. So, my recipe for a vegan burrito. Ingredients are three tablespoons olive oil, a diced yellow onion, half a green bell pepper diced, two Roma tomatoes diced with the juice removed. If you don't know how to do that, Google it. One cup of cooked rice, cooked black beans, and cooked lentils. That's one cup of each of those. If you don't know how to cook rice or black beans or lentils, read the package. It's not hard. Boil fucking water. (laughs) Um, A half cup of salsa, six to eight eight eight-inch tortillas, 
some adobe, some cumin, and some pepper to taste. I'll get into this. You use more than you think you will because tomatoes undercut flavor. So does rice, so do beans. Uh, step one, medium saucepan. Uh, heat the three tablespoons of olive oil over medium heat. Add the onion and cook, stirring frequently about 10 minutes. Add the green pepper and cook an additional five minutes. Uh, add the tomatoes and the seasoning. Again, using much more than you think. You will think you're using too much cumin. You will think you're using too much adobe. I promise you, you are not. You're making sure that it's flavorful and delicious. Meat is not what tastes good, my friend. Seasonings are what taste good. Oh, trust me. My, my wife has shown me the light in that regard. Fantastic. Stir very well and then set the heat to medium low. Step two. Add the rice, lentils, black beans, and salsa. Stir until it is very well mixed. Cover and let it sit until all the ingredients are warm. Maybe about five minutes. Step three. Remove from the heat. Scoop the mixture onto the tortillas in about three-quarter to one-cup increments. Fold the east and west sides inward, then the north and south over them so that they fit snugly. If they don't close, you are scooping too much on. Use less mixture. You're done. Serve hot. Uh, now, if you'd like to make them vegetarian style, you can add shredded cheddar cheese when rolling into the tortillas. And in deference to those of you who are not vegetarians or vegans, if you want to take out the cup of lentils and replace it with an equivalent amount of cooked beef, pork, or chicken chunks, uh, you can do so. Uh, it'll still have all of the flavors, and it won't be vegany. and you can have your meat. You can also use tofu if you're so inclined. Mm. I don't typically make mine with tofu, but it's an option. So I will post that recipe in our show notes, but that is something that I make probably two, three times a month for, for me and Stephanie. She loves it. It's one yeah. of my favorite things that I make. Uh, I, I regularly make the vegetarian version. Um, I am a vegetarian, not a vegan. I've, I've, been, I've done veganism before. Um, vegetarianism works for me right now at this point in life, and that's awesome. Um, but yeah. So that is how I make burritos, and they are fucking delightful, Andrew. I, I, I'm sure they're fucking delightful. I would love to have your burritos. Uh, you know, I bet I, you would. We, yeah. We're not done with this here. I want to talk a little bit. I think, you know, burritos really are a little bit of uh, superfoods, the wrong word, because superfood is usually something healthy, but they are a. They are a widely accessible food. I think, am I wrong in thinking no, that's part of the appeal? No, you're absolutely right. Um, here, here's, a, here's the thing about burritos, and, and we've talked about this before when issues of food have come up. When issues of health have come up, um, there's a giant gap in, uh, in food culture in general, but yeah. especially uh, in the uh, U.S. American view of it, where... A lot of there's a lot of looking down on foods that poor people eat, and it's funny because I live in Asheville. There's no shortage of great Mexican places there, oddly. Yeah. Uh, and there's no short. Weirdly, there's not that much of a shortage of Mexican places run by actual Mexicans. That makes it interesting. Yeah. It's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. I, now I do kind of wonder a little bit. Is this kind of like? The stories of, you know, the mid-19th century when there were all of these, you know, Chinese laundry places opening up in <laughs> in California because there were all these Chinese immigrants and it was just a business they could all gravitate to. 
I wonder a little bit about that. Um, that is not actually a stereotype, folks. It became a stereotype later, but it has historical grounding. Um, I wonder a little bit if Mexican food culture in Asheville didn't evolve kind of out of that. That said, um, white people, stop putting sweet potatoes in burritos. Uh, I, I, I'm only halfway joking about that. Like... I don't personally like sweet potatoes. I see a lot of people put, like, put whatever you want in your burritos. That's kind of one of the great things about burritos is they're highly customizable. You can make them however you want. But one really great thing about them is that because they're so customizable, poor people can make them work. Sure. So, like, I talk about using cooked rice, cooked black beans, cooked lentils. You can get the canned stuff. You can straight up dump that stuff in a strainer or even like a paper towel, run water over it to get rid of a lot of the excess sodium, and throw that in, in place of actually making cooked black beans, cooked lentils. Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, I'm not going to pretend it's as, you know, ideal as getting the incredibly fresh made, like freshly made, freshly boiled versions of those things. But this is a way that, People without the same means can very often access a similar level of nutrition, deliciousness, yeah. portability, uh, accessibility to just a really good fucking food that isn't something you stick in a microwave, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, also going into the other side of the economics of eating, basically, you know, what are the three things you know are at every 7-Eleven or every convenience store, every gas station in the country. Uh, breakfast sandwiches, cigarettes, and you know there's a gas station burrito there. Sure. You know, it is it is a, a, a food that can be found everywhere. Yeah. And it's funny, uh, talking about customization and all of that, uh, I've seen more than a few places now are trying to do Asian-style burritos. Like, Yo, like, no lie, um, so Stephanie's taking me to New York for, uh, for um, my birthday. We're taking a trip up to New York. Uh, I'm going to visit with some friends and see some parts of the city I've never been to. Um, I've never been to Brooklyn. We're going to stay in Brooklyn. Okay. Like, I've never... I've, I've spent a bunch of time in New York, but, you know, I'm mostly, mostly on, the, like, the Manhattan side. Like, I've never spent a significant amount of time in Brooklyn. I found out that there's, like, five Chino-Latino places. <laughs> like, Chinese, either Mexican or Guatemalan fusion, I think. And I'm sitting here going like, yes, I am there. I want to try one of these. They sound amazing. I'm bigger than you. I'm higher in the food chain. Get in my belly. But you know what? Yeah. Like, first of all, Chinese food in the U.S., most Asian foods in the U.S. are heavily Americanized. Most most Mexican foods as well. You know, yes. Tex-Mex is is what most people get when they go to a Mexican restaurant. And Taco Bell, especially. Taco Bell is not actual Mexican food. No, not by a long shot. No, you're right. That said, think about a lot of those... Think about think about your standard Chinese food fare. Like, those aren't expensive ingredients. No, yeah. Those aren't fancy ingredients. Those are, here you got your chicken, you got your rice, you got your veggies, you got soy sauce. What can we do with this? Yeah, and they do magic. <laughs> yeah. You, my motherfuckers can make a chicken taste like an orange, you know? But, <laughs> but that's, that's, I mean, that's part of this, is part of my experience with this particular food, and it does offer some emotional attachment in that regard, is I started, I started eating them 
And then I got really into them and making them and developing my own recipe for them when I was a broke-ass grad school student trying to... Like, I was lifting weights for my sanity. (laughs) I was a vegetarian for my ethics. And I was broke as hell because I was an adjunct college teacher trying to also get a, get an arts master's. Like, <laughs> it, it doesn't get more, like, authentically David, Co- David Copperfield than that shit. <laughs> but, but, yeah, so that, and that is part of my experience here is this was something that I could make that was comforting, that was good for me, the way that I did it. Now, there are ways to make it that are terrible for you, and I don't pretend that's not true. Sure. But, like, it worked for me in a definitive capacity. And I'm not telling everyone out here, like, all of you should have a burrito-based diet. Um, <laughs> That's a great mental image, though. Oh, dear. Um, yeah, no. I'm not saying that. I am saying if you've ever been like, fuck burritos, you know, give them another chance because you might not be eating the right burritos. But I, I, I have an emotional attachment to this food. And that was really what was, like, interested me about talking about this. Because... Sure. I, you know, we can sit here and do all the pop culture loves and hates that we want. And listeners, we are about to. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> um, but, you know, I kind of want it. Food is something so inherent to us, to our lives. And I could pick a genre of food. I could pick. I used to be a really picky eater before I went vegetarian. Mm. Like, my parents got, like, everyone knows that one kid who always ordered, like, chicken fingers. Yeah. When you went out to dinner. Like, yeah. Every time you went out, they were just like, yeah, can I just get the chicken fingers? Like, I don't, you're, it didn't matter where you were. It didn't matter if it was, you know, your standard run-of-the-mill Darden-style restaurant. It didn't matter yeah. if you were, if it was somewhere fancy. It didn't matter if it was a hole-in-the-wall place owned by, like, someone your parents knew from church. Like, it just sit there and just go like, can I get some chicken fingers and some ketchup and mustard? Like, that was me. Um... <laughs> You know, and I've and I've evolved in that sense in a lot of ways. And this is this is one aspect of me wanting to kind of talk about that a little bit because sure. and, and I would love to do more like food based subjects in general. Yeah. So yeah, my interest here is really just exploring what this concept of a food really really means to me because it's still comforting. It's still one of my it's still my favorite thing to eat. It's still one of my favorite things to cook. Like I don't even feel I can come home from a shit-ass day, and then it's my day to cook, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to be like, yo, I'm making my burritos, <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's good. And this whole, this whole recipe that I just read off to you guys takes 30 minutes or less. Obviously, I, I gave some time fixations in there. You don't have to adhere to them strictly, but like, it's a comforting thing. Is there a proletariat angle to this I could place on it? You bet your <laughs> ass there is. Is there is there a cultural angle I can put on this? Absolutely. And it's not even really my culture. And if you think that Colombian culture and Mexican culture are real damn similar because we both speak Spanish, fuck you. Die in a hole. Um, but We're going to get to you with the next topic. <laughs> oh, <God>. Jesus. <laughs> sort of. But yeah, like, there, the, for me, there's an emotional attachment to this. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I, and I'm honestly curious. I wonder if any of you guys have, like, you know what, go ahead. Tweet us. Send us messages. Love-hate relationship audience. If you've got a favorite food that you come back to over and over and over again, something you enjoy making or something you have a very visceral attachment to, that you feel warrants this kind of attention that I'm throwing on burritos, like, let me know. I kind of want to hear this. Tweet us. We're at LHRPod. 
Join the discussion. Ew, I feel dirty saying that, actually. <laughs> Join the discussion. Send us your food takes. Send us your burrito takes. We're going to close this out with mine right now. In Orlando, I'm not sure if everywhere else, but in Orlando specifically, there are multiple chain uh, you know, burrito joints. And listeners, I'm going to let you in on the Illuminati secret. You get the meat from Chipotle, the rice from Cadoba, and the cheese from Moe's. Get your tortilla from wherever you want, but meat from Chipotle, rice from Cadoba, cheese from Moe's. You've got the best burrito. Counterpoint, find a hole in the wall. Oh, yes. Actually, that was probably a much better idea. Find a place that's like, you walk in and and like the woman at the front is like, how many in your party? Like, straight up. And you will never find it. Like, when I visit a new place, that's one of the first things I tend to do is just... I, I kind of said to your and I go, all right, what's a good Mexican joint here? Because everywhere has them. Yeah. You'll find them. And if you can find the dirt-ass hole in the wall in the back of some shopping plaza, like, you will probably have way more food than you expect for way cheaper than you expect. And it will be delicious. It will be delightful. All right. So that's my love. Awesome, man. Well, thank you, as always. All right. So, Andy, you've chosen... Listeners, I I know that our last couple of episodes have been a little long, which is part of why I was trying to be, you know, as... I was trying to be somewhat curt with my love. Sure. Andy decided to choose a very big big topic that we can both get into. Um, So, Andy, by all means. When we get into the hate, I I find that I can pre-plan my loves a little better. With the hate, it, it really just sort of strikes me at the moment. Um, We're going to get into it. My hate for this week is toxicity in the comic book fandom. Um, And let me give you a little bit of a backstory. Uh, We are giant comic book nerds. Yes, we are. Uh, We are big, fat, geeky, uh, can recite any superheroes, alias, and probably nemesis, and maybe first appearance. We're a big old bunch of nerds. Yeah. Worst crossover ever. I've been reading comics all of my life from, you know, a box of comics that my dad had as a kid that he passed on to buying issue by issue back in 2004. The first stuff I ever bought was the Jeff Johns Teen Titans run. Yo, that's actually a solid run. It ruined me for all the crap that came after. (laughs) Wait till I tell you the first comic story I ever picked up. (laughs) Oh, God. But, uh, you know, I'm just saying we... We know what we're talking about here. We are credited. If if we if I was going to have a doctorate in anything, it would be the useless pop culture trivia of comic book knowledge. Fair enough. Yeah. So with that said, though, I've kind of kept my finger off the pulse of the mainstream comics industry and the fans therein for a while now. And I recently discovered on Twitter, yo, a lot of you douchebags are ruining this. Uh, there is a, a overarching sentiment right now, as with uh, most other things in American life, with our comic book fans of these almost alt-right, predominantly white 30s men going around talking about how the comic book industry is dying, and it's not as good anymore, and and you know comic sales are going down, and it's a problem, and woe is comics, woe is me. And a lot of them are pointing to diversity in comics as the reason. What? I'm, no, I'm sorry. What? 
send us your burrito takes. If you honestly think that comics are worse now, send me your arguments and I will fight you, motherfucker. I've got a, I've got a lot of Silver Age storylines to run by you if you think <laughs> comics are better now. Like, because here's the thing. Comic books are, are seemingly more diverse than they've ever been. I, I'm going to focus in on Marvel because that's really what I have gravitated to. But, you know, in recent years, a couple of select Marvel characters, you've got Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan, who is a Pakistani-American. Uh, Riri Williams, Ironheart. She is currently uh, Tony Stark's successor as Iron Man. 14-year-old black girl. 14-year-old black girl. Uh, you know, to, to bring it to DC, you have Batwoman, Kate Kane, who is a uh, lesbian and has been since her first appearance. And Ruby Rose actually has just been cast as the live action version of her. Hell yeah! <laughs> and, you know, to not even take it from characters, to take it to creators, you know, we've got people like Marjorie Lou, Gail Simone. Those are some of the premier comic book writers. G. Willow Wilson, Kelly Sue DeConnick, Greg Pak. Greg Pak. I fucking love Greg Pak. Like, Greg Pak hasn't written a bad comic in a while, guys. (laughs) (laughs) So your writers, your artists, your characters are coming out as not straight white men for what seems to be the first time, or at least more than ever, and people are getting upset about this. People are freaking out that Bobby Drake is gay. People are freaking out about Iron Man being a black woman, and I don't understand how. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about this 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 group that I'm picking on, and you know, full disclosure, it's not everybody, but there is enough of a voice, and this voice is predominantly. You know, people uh, our age and, th- and older, people like say in their 30s, uh, you know, pretty much exclusively white and exclusively men, but some women too, sitting here talking about how, oh, you know, Tony Stark's a minority. I don't, uh, so and so's gay. You know, keep keep that out of my comic book. And Okay, first of all, you're lying to yourself if you think that this is the first time comic books have been diverse. Or political. Or political. You know, uh, the, to, bring it, to keep it in Marvel, uh, Marvel Comics started around 1963. Black Panther came out in 1966. Mm-hmm. You know, Black Panther was the premier, or one of the premier black superheroes. And you want to talk about creative teams, uh, Newsflash, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby... Uh, Bob Kane, Jewish men. <laughs> to be writing in the 60s, um, you know, a, a time so close to after World War II, mm-hmm. a time where, honestly, I mean, to be Jewish is to be a minority. So you can't sit here and say that this hasn't been the way things have always been. Yeah, there's and there's a lot of... So there's a lot of cultural discussion about when exactly... Judaism, in a lot of ways, especially in liberal America, is the, uh, and I'll specify, racist liberal America. Yeah. Folks who, you know, they vote Democrat, but they, they, they get bothered when a certain type of person moves into their neighborhood. Judaism was the uh, acceptable minority in a right. lot of ways. Uh, they took over that space after the Irish and the Italians effectively integrated into white society. Uh, and we can get into that history, but it would be a deflect. It, it would be deflecting away from 
the core tenant point here, which is a lot of the characters that are central to these conceits were writing and working in a time in which they were looked at as a variation on a second-class citizen. Right. When Jack Kirby was, you know, doing his work on Captain America, actual Nazis would show up to the Timely Comics office threatening to beat the shit out of him. And Jack Kirby would roll up his sleeves and go to meet them in the lobby because <laughs> Jack Kirby is better than all of us. <laughs> Absolutely. But but that was that's an actual story that happened more than once to Jack Kirby. Yeah. And I, I like that you're getting into this notion that this is not new, you know. Look at the X-Men. X-Men was a tremendous failure. Silver Age X-Men, and those stories are not very good, by the way. No, like, they're not. If you go back and reread, like, the Stan Lee, Jack Kirby X-Men stories, they are not great by any capacity. And I love a lot of those characters and what those characters eventually became. Flash forward to when X-Men revived under the Claremont era... What did Claremont fucking do? Claremont got rid of four of the five original X-Men and then brought in what, for that period of time in the late 70s, was an incredibly diverse crowd. Now, granted, that diverse crowd included Wolverine, who was a Canadian, uh, included Colossus, who was Soviet. Granted, two white dudes right there, but it also included Thunderbird for two, three issues. Uh, A Native American. Storm. Who is my favorite X-Man, and I will fight you if you have problems with Storm. I will happily do that. Um, am I missing anyone from that? Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler. Who is German. Banshee. Banshee, Irish. who is Irish. So there's a lot of white people in that, but for the time, it was considered this big, diverse crowd there. But guess what? When Scott Summers leaves the X-Men, Storm becomes the leader. Yeah. And Storm is arguably the best character of the Claremont run of the comics. I think that's fair to make that assertion. Like in 17 years, and, and if and and you know what's funny? The best argument against that, the best character who, the the, the character who Claremont might have written, who could possibly stand up to Storm in that capacity, is fucking Kitty Pride, a Jewish girl. Yeah. So this <laughs> this notion that it's a new thing. Or that comics weren't political. Like, my my experience listening to all this is people just being like, all these SGAWs are putting their politics into our comics and it's ruining the stories. And I'm sitting here just like, what? Like, Neil Adams didn't do an entire run with Green Lantern and Green Arrow driving around in a van trying to solve the crack epidemic? Like, (laughs) fuck you! Yeah, I mean, comic books have always been diverse. Comic books have always been political to... to, uh, um to say they're not is is just absolute foolishness. And the thing that I, I don't understand, you know, I talked about how I only just recently became aware of this anti, um, anti-diverse sentiment. I've kind of been in this bubble of being happy and being interested in these characters and being excited at the idea of legacy characters and not caring if they were white or male or whatever. I just wanted a good story. And, you know, I consider myself a pretty stereotypical comic book nerd. And what I mean by that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I was never a jock. I was never a jock. I was never an incredibly popular kid, especially, you know, in elementary school. And I turned to literature and comic books, especially comic books are literature. If you don't think so, you're wrong. 
um, as my escape and my 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 inclusion and my my thing that I could dive into and be happy just reading my comic book. I assume that these same people who are sitting here complaining about Riri Williams have similar you know backstories as I do and are stereotypical comic book nerds. And I don't understand how the uh, socially socially downtrodden. Uh, youth of yesterday are growing up and being a bunch of racist, bigoted assholes. So I have some theories. Go for it. If you're interested. Yeah, go. I mean, as saying it out loud, I start to be, oh, wait, no, that makes perfect sense, but yeah. give me your theories. So, well, no, okay, so, you know, like like you, I, you know, I didn't actually grow up reading comics. Uh, I did pick up my first comic uh, when I was in my early teens. Uh, it w- by the way, it was uh, Fatal Attractions. Nah. It was Chris Claremont's uh, Chris Claremont's Uncanny X Men Fatal Attractions. I think that's a 1992, 1993 story. I think so, yeah. uh, wherein Magneto commits genocide. Uh, that's just the beginning of the story. Uh, <laughs> most people remember it as the story where Magneto rips the adamantium out of uh, Wolverine's sure. skeleton. Yep. I remember it as the one where Magneto commits genocide. Yeah, you pick and choose. <laughs> uh, but uh, my point is. I I came into comics a little later. Um, I was probably in my late teens when I started. And I read. I by the way, I only read trades. Like I don't keep, buy single issues. Um, some would argue I'm one of the problems with the industry because I don't want to participate in its uh, outdated serial model. No. Uh, but I do buy trades, and I buy trades regularly. I have a robust trades collection that I really enjoy. I also don't follow stories or characters. I follow writers. Sure. Very important to me. This is to give you grounding in what kind of comics fan I am. But I am a nerd, and I did come up with a lot of these franchises, with a lot of these characters. I was big into the cartoons. I was big into animation. I watched movies. I and I and and there is a sense of character identification. And there is this idea of ownership mm-hmm. over the art. Uh, when we did our, when when we did the George R. R. Martin talk, you know, I asked you, what do you feel creators owe their readers? With something like a novel, it feels very easy to make that one-to-one connection for the creators. Yeah. With comics, it's hard because creators shifted so many times over the years, and they continue to. Really, we feel uh, there's if there's anyone who owes us anything, quote-unquote, or if we exist with an attitude of ownership over this property, it comes down to the companies. We complain to, we complain to Disney that The Last Jedi was a bad movie, um, which, like, no, it wasn't. It was a different movie, but we're not, we're not talking about Star Wars. We're talking specifically about these comics. Sure. But it's the same kind of setup. It's this idea... Marvel, you owe me an Iron Man that I can aspire to. You owe me an Iron Man the way Robert Downey Jr. presents him. Charming, kind of a dick, but everybody loves him. He's always right. You owe me a Steve Rogers, Captain America, that I can aspire to be, that I can put myself into because I used to be weak and a nothing and... His ideals make me feel good about myself. Do I embody those ideals? Eh, I'm not thinking about it that hard. But, and I don't want to get into straw man arguments, but the fact is a lot of people put themselves into the identities of these characters. 
Spider-Man and the X-Men were designed as teens because the idea was, hey, we want teenagers to identify with these characters. So what happens when, as is narratively normal, the characters evolve or even move on? And we are looking to grab new audiences. Like the, The capitalist argument here is diversity sells because it's an untapped market. Yeah. And what do we, and what do we get from the market that we've had? We get people who come up with pull lists, who just follow these characters, and then they get kind of bored, and then they don't pick it up. Then they don't follow up with it. They don't buy more copies afterwards. They fall off the books. They don't care. The comics industry has been dying because it's an outmoded industry, and it yeah. needs to evolve. Part of that evolution should be moving away from the original comics model. Part of it is honestly getting diversified characters out there so that a young black girl can pick up Ironheart. You know? So that... Why is Squirrel Girl so fucking popular? (laughs) Because she is a hero that a little girl can read. I can pick up a Squirrel Girl comic and give it to my goddaughter. Yeah. She's ten. You know? I can hand it to her and be like, yo, I remember when this character was created. One day I'll show you this other couple of stories that she's in from early on that are too mature for you right now. But for right now, I want you to read Squirrel Girl because Squirrel Girl is boss and amazing and written really creatively, by the way. Like, that's the other side of it is not only is it, is there, I think there's, I think the argument is that like, oh, these books are only popular or they're only making these books for the sake of diversity. And if that were the case, okay, fair enough. That would not be all right. But Ms. Marvel is incredible right now. Yeah. But Captain Marvel is incredible right now. But Squirrel Girl is doing really weird, interesting things with the genre. Spider-Gwen. Spider-Gwen is a weird-ass book that's really cool. Yeah. Gwenpool is arguably more doing more interesting narrative things than Deadpool does. And by the way, Gwenpool is not like a spider spider gwen equivalent to deadpool if you read gwenpool like she's actually has more in common with super superboy prime <laughs> for those of you who are fans from the old crisis eras uh and the crisis storyline sure. she has more in common with that character but like they're doing interesting new shit here and yeah. oh they happen to look like another audience that by the way has always bought comics but has never been tailored to yeah yeah, let's look at the Marvel movies. You know, Black Panther was the one that just blew the doors off the box office and made, I think, like $10 billion as of last week. They've hit that mark. You know, Black Panther is financially the most successful Marvel movie of all time, even more so than Infinity War. The audience has always been there. You look at any aspect of science fiction and you see a marginalized group that is interested in something, makes it cool white people come in say oh wow this is cool we're into it into it too and then turn around and start gatekeeping to everyone else about the property and you know i have a solution i think this is a solution and this touches a little bit on what we were just talking about uh what comics should do getting into new markets and diversifying and my solution i will explain by going into the thing i hate in a previous episode i talked about how all the best comic stories end and i absolutely believe that And the thing where I'm having this disconnect with these other people who are upset that uh, Tony Stark isn't Iron Man anymore or, you know, all of their problems, I love legacy characters. 
And I hate that for DC and Marvel, the mainstream heroes are immortal and timeless. And we've been telling stories for 50, 60 years about the same characters, and we just keep retconning and rebooting and making it so Tony Stark wasn't in the Vietnam War, he was, he was in the Iraq War. Um, you know, the X-Men have been around since 63. Cyclops should be an old man. But instead we keep pulling younger versions out of the time stream and, and throwing them into it. You know, <laughs> we keep killing Batman and resurrecting him. We keep, we keep keeping the timeline on a sliding scale so that people can continue to read about the same people. And then you wonder why we're getting bored and and you know we talk about writers a writer a writer's run can be really great and and breathe new life into a character and you know there are several stories that are amazing and modern and impactful and really cool that are with these old characters and i'm not saying that those are bad but i just wonder if we could have had that with new stuff my biggest example so, for people who aren't familiar with uh, Wolverine, around the time the Logan Wolverine 3 movie came out, Logan died in the comics mm. and has been gone and dead for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. And, and X- he was replaced by... He was replaced by Laura Kinney, X-23, who is such a fucking more interesting, awesome character. And we had a new Wolverine, and she was great, and she was different enough from Logan. And as of recording, we know that Logan is coming back into this latest comic book stuff, and we're, we're getting back to male Wolverine. Asterisk. Not long after standard uh, Marvel 616 Wolverine died and Laura Kinney's X-23 took over as Wolverine, they took Mark Millar's old man Logan out of that universe and threw him in there. So you basically were like, okay, we don't have real Wolverine, but we have this alternate version of Wolverine and we have his clone... And we have his son, and you, you still had your Wolverine fix. Yeah, and it's, I mean... And it's boring. Yeah. I'm sorry, it's boring. Yeah. There's a, there's a... Did you read Jerry Duggan's uh, Deadpool Kills the Marvel Universe? I have not. Okay. Spoilers for those who haven't, and spoilers to you. He kills the Marvel Universe. He kills the Marvel Universe. <laughs> the scene with Wolverine is interesting, because he kills the rest of the X-Men first. Wolverine survives. And he flat out says in, like, conversation of Wolverine, like, before he kills him, he's like, of course you survived. Of course you did. Because we had to have this scene. Hmm. We had to have this moment between you and me. Because your superpower isn't really healing. And I'm paraphrasing all of this, but he's like, your superpower is not healing. Your superpower is popularity. <laughs> and that's fucking... That's true. Yeah, like, and absolutely. That's, and, and that's why I, I agree with you that the best stories end. Absolutely agree with you. And I think that it always helps when there's real and natural evolution in the way that these stories work. Yeah. I think the X-Men is a really great example of this. Because again, you had the original five. You had... Okay, any of you out there who don't read the comics but did maybe watch like one of the X-Men cartoons growing up. The old animated series, maybe X-Men Evolution. You're probably at least passively familiar with... You, you know who Scott and Jean are... You know who Wolverine is. You know who Beast is. Do you know who Angel is? Do you know who Iceman is? You, you might. Especially, and if you've seen the movies, you know those characters. That's great. 
The original team was Scott, Gene, Beast, Angel, and Bobby. And they were boring. It was a boring book. It wasn't good. Go reread any of Silver Age yeah. X-Men. It's that giant, like, Stan Lee dialogue that's, yeah. oh, like... <laughs> The, where where he thinks that's how teenagers in the 60s would talk and holy shit that's not how they would talk and it's it's not good it's not good at all and it changed and it evolved and gene's been dead for a while which is nice even though we've got like original gene now but now here you know some characters wrote out of the book for a while you didn't yeah. have bobby for a while you had beast appearing in avengers, avengers Defenders, anything for, else for a long time and so there were x-men books without beast that was a really interesting reuse of that character should these characters be written out? Should they be gone? Should they be dead? Maybe. I can think of a lot of, like, older school characters who haven't really been around for a while. And do I sometimes miss them? You know, maybe. I, I, honestly, there were characters that I really gravitated towards. I feel like the frustrations there come back more to editorial. Yeah. Allowing comics to get so insane. The reason why you need line-wide reboots is because there's nobody actually managing this stuff. They also didn't account for the fact that you'd have continuity nerds. Old school writers didn't give a damn about continuity. They didn't, they didn't, they weren't working off of like a series Bible the way your favorite TV shows are nowadays. They were just like, Superman can make tiny clones of himself come out of his hands because that's what this story needs. This is what the kids will think is neat. Yeah, and <laughs> we're never going to address it again. And then it's not going to matter anymore after Crisis on Infinite Earths. But you know what? I'm a writer who really enjoyed Crisis on Infinite Earths, so let me see if I can completely redo everything, Jeff Johns and Grant Morrison. <laughs> like... Both of whom are writers I love. Yeah. I do. I get it. And there's something, too, sometimes going back to the well. Jeff Johns is just a Society of America where he took a bunch of old school characters who were not relevant anymore, who nobody cared about. And honestly, I didn't even like that much in their old stories. He brought them back and he made them kind of interesting in some ways. It's not my favorite run of comics, but he did some cool shit. He told some interesting stories. Yeah. But... You know, it's nice when there's a new character. It's nice when someone creates something interesting or different or you pull something out of somewhere else and 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 good shit happens. I think it's interesting. I think it's more engaging to learn about a new character than to watch the trials and mental tribulations of an old one for the 50th time and go through a retcon. You know, I, I, I want to close with this. Refocusing on my actual hate, the toxicity of a vocal minority of comic fans. And they are a minority. They are a minority. As with... A lot of things going on in American society right now, I don't think they accurately reflect the body as a whole, but they are the aspect and the minority that is kicking and screaming and raising up a big vocal stink about blank. Blank, in this case, being uh, a, you know, a, a black girl in a uh, metal flying suit that can shoot lasers, which is so goddamn more frustrating than a white guy in a mustache in a metal suit who can fly around and shoot lasers. Who, by the way, was an arms dealer. <laughs> they say the best weapon is one you never have to fire. I respectfully disagree. I prefer the weapon you only have to fire once. So, you know, hopefully 
the problem goes away. And if nothing else, it is pretty easy for the more sane comic book fans to ignore. And I want to just highlight a couple of things for people to latch on to to realize that comics aren't dying. Diversity in comics is not bad. You know, uh, just just to run off a couple of things, we've got the Marvel Universe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is blowing up comic popularity, and it's cool to like comic books now. You wouldn't have the Marvel Cinematic Universe without Blade, motherfucker. (laughs) Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate a bill. Blade, for those of you who don't know, was Wesley Snipes, a black vampire hunter. And no joke, it was the first Marvel movie that was any good in the box office. Yes. So we owe everything to Wesley Snipes and Blade. If it weren't for Blade, we would be staring down the barrel of Spawn? Yeah. With Michael J. White and John Leguizamo? We've got Blade. We've talked about Black Panther being a phenomenal box office smash. We've talked about Captain Marvel, a woman being a, one of the most dynamic characters in comics right now. Squirrel Girl. Look, um, and even look at the DC universe. Sure. Like, okay, we got our Man of Steel movie. Fine. <laughs> we got Batman v Superman, which I actually rate higher than a lot of people do, but I don't rate it high. Like, I, I stand by my solid B minus. I think it. I think it is a B minus. It is an eighty <laughs> percent. Um, I uh, Justice League was Justice League. Wonder Woman was solid, y'all. Wonder Woman was great. Like Wonder Woman was legit. And and I'm watching the trailers for Aquaman, and I'm sitting here going like, this has a chance. It might not suck. I, I don't know yet. Yeah. I really don't. I I and and we're not here to philosophize. By the way, Suicide Squad for how much hate it got. Y'all motherfuckers bought tickets. <laughs> there is someone listening to this who talks about how much they hate Suicide Squad and gave them money for it. You know how I know? Because it made like $180 million in its America run. Yeah. You bitches are liars. <laughs> um, yeah, things are looking up. And, and to speak on one last thing, outside of just characters and outside of writers... Fans, the people talking about comics and enjoying comics, I want to shine some light on something that I have been mainlining like heroin. <laughs> uh, this is a podcast Alex recommended to me called Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. Mm-hmm. These two are friggin' encyclopedias of brilliant, uh, profound, uh, well-researched and, and well-opinionated opinions um, about X-Men. And they are a person of color and a transgendered man. And they blow my comic nerd ass out of the water. They, oh, are, yeah. they are so smart and, and awesome. And if you uh, enjoyed the X-Men, please check out Jay and Miles. But so I think I've shown that over the entire landscape of comics, from character to creator to fan... Diversity in comics is a good thing. Diversity in comics is creating some of the best things about comics right now. And for all of you who listen to Richard Meyer's Diversity in Comics YouTube channel and go to cons and talk about how shit sucks now and comics are dying, you're wrong. And, like, broaden your mind. Broaden your mind for your own sake or go in a fucking fire. Yeah. And I and I will I will close this topic with just this one point. As a person of color, I was frequently 
expected to identify with characters who looked nothing like me, who sounded nothing like me, who did not have my background. I didn't have a problem with that. I didn't know to have a problem with that, in fairness, because uh, it was presented to me very much as, like, you, here, Batman, enjoy. And I did. And I do. But if I can do that, if I can do that my entire life, if I can keep doing that, where I can say my favorite X-Man is Storm, where I can tell you more about Batman than you ever wanted to know, and trust me, listener, I can. <laughs> I don't care who you are. I can. Um... If I can do that, if I can identify with characters who look nothing like me, so can all of these folks. Yeah. So can every one of them. Whether that's a writer or a character or anything. So, toxic fandom in comic book culture. Andy, have we solved it? I think we've shown that it's solving itself. You are such a beautiful little optimist, and I love you, Porter. <laughs> ready for the last segment? I'm ready for the last segment, my man. All right, cool. Alright, so uh, this one did not come with a name, but uh, okay. I will just go ahead and read through and we can figure out what we're going to do. Sure. Alright. Hey, hey, lovers, haters, relationshippers. I like it. I love it. Uh, I want some... No, I'm not going to My question is about building relationships with audiences, specifically ones you're hoping to pay you for doing creative stuff. About me. I've been a freelance graphic designer and on-again, off-again painter for around six years. It started in college as a way to get a little extra cash, and it's continued into my grown-up life, helping ends meet where my normal grown-up job hasn't exactly met my needs. Lately, I've been inspired by all the folks I see making a living off of Patreon, and I'm really interested in trying it out. I'm scared shitless, though. I like my artistic work and have been able to pull off some decent money here and there for the actual stuff I make and get pretty solid referrals, but I don't know the first thing about convincing a bunch of strangers to give me money on a regular basis. Well, uh, I know I need to give them incentives, but what's reasonable to expect people to pay and what's reasonable to give them in return? I'd love it if I could eventually quit my job and do art and design full time, though I know that'll take a long time to get to if I ever do. Any insight will help. Thanks. All right. Um, so first of all, let's give this person a name. Give this person a name. Um, it's a good name. You know what? We talked a lot about comics. Give me, give me a diverse comic books character, since this person is into art and comics. What are comics if not great art? Let's go with Tony Chu. Tony Chu. For those of you who don't know, <laughs> Chu is this awesome uh, series about a forensic scientist who anything he eats, he knows it's life story. Strangely enough, the only food Tony Chu can eat and not get a psychic sensation from is beets. Consequently, Tony Chu eats a lot of beets. It's, uh, it's, it's like, it's like pushing daisies, uh, oh, it is. with, yeah. like, it's like culinary pushing daisies. Yeah. Which is a funny way to refer to a TV show about a pie maker. Um, <laughs> besides the point. By the way, if you haven't, if any of you haven't seen Pushing Daisies, go watch Pushing Daisies. It's like a season. It's delightful. Watch it. All right. So, hi, Tony. Um, my first thought is, dude, same. <laughs> You're talking to a couple of uh, guys who are aspiring to be podcasters. So, uh, let me make it clear. We know your struggle right now. Uh, but I will say, I think you're in a slightly better position with graphic design and art because that is a little bit more of a tangible skill than talking. 
I mean, it is. Uh, I'm I'm gonna be upfront with you, Tony. Um, I know a lot of freelancers. I've done I've done a little freelance work uh, as a writer, and never. Never anywhere close to enough to sustain myself. It was sure. like it was like this was grocery money when I was looking to do when I was in graduate school or in college or what have you. Yeah. Um, it is absolutely possible to make a living out of doing your full time art and especially graphic design because graphic design is a marketable skill. Absolutely, that, you, you're absolutely right there. Um. I'm a little concerned at you seeming to be so, like, headfirst about the Patreon model. Uh, in my experience, most of the people who get Patreons, they, they get their Patreon, and they keep working. They yeah. keep their day jobs. Very few people... And when I say very few people, I mean under a percent make a full-time living off of their Patreon work. And I think there's also a bit of a fact where you make the Patreon because the supply is already there, at least at least a little bit. Yeah. So, but I think you're on the right idea um, in the idea that you might be able to get by, at least help yourself start to get by... By doing a sort of pay per model, and uh, Patreon might be the wrong thing, but I do want to clue you in on a different uh, avenue. Um, there's a site called Fiverr. I believe it's uh, spelled with two R's, but maybe it not. Is. Okay, yeah. yeah, Fiverr with two R's, and Fiverr is this awesome freelance connection site. Um, our logo, if you're watching this on YouTube or you know looking at the, uh, the little icon. Um, our logo was made off of Fiverr, and it took you know a couple of days to make, and it was a very well received product that we are both very happy with. Absolutely. I think I paid more than five dollars, but the idea is pay for project, and you know graphic design especially, especially once you know what you're doing in terms of whatever software you're using and you you know you have skill i i get the sense that you most definitely have a degree of skill here i think that is a pretty good way to at least start making some more side money with your talent and i'll say tony specifically in reference since this is a question about building relationships with audiences you're trying to cultivate an audience. You're trying to call, and not just an audience. You're not just trying to fill, put butts in a seat. You are trying to build relationships where people will want to consistently return to you over right. and over and over again and pay you for your work. That is delightful. That is wonderful. The way to do that, first and foremost, and I feel like there's, and if, I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast before um, or if I've used this example, but um, are, you familiar, are you familiar with the story of Stephen King's pencil? No. There's a uh, apocryphal. It's probably it probably never actually happened, but there was <laughs> no, but there was a talkback apparently, like according to legend, where Stephen King was doing a talkback at a Q and A session following a reading, and someone went up there and just listed off all of his credentials. They're just like, Mr. King, you know, you won. You won the Bram Stoker Award in this year, and you won the, this prize in this year. You've published this many books. You've sold this many books. You've done this. You've done this. You've done this. You've built 
you made this much money off of these film rights. And after listing all these credentials, they say, I have one question for you. What brand of pencil do you use? <laughs> the moral of the story essentially being, you know, people ask questions about like, okay, what is the... If I build an audience, like, should I use Patreon or should I create my own subscription site? Should I do pay? Should I do like freelance on the side here? Build my own, build my own production site here. How do I put my portfolio out there? They ask for all these excess details, which are important. Don't get me wrong; they're they're important. They're not as important as doing dope work and getting dope referrals. You say you're getting decent referrals. How do you get more of that? Yeah. Reach out to the people you've done work for who have told you they love your work and say, "Listen, here are business cards." Here are samples I have. Do me a favor. Put this out there. Word of mouth is more important than anything else. I would probably say once your freelance work is getting high enough that your day job is getting in the way and you are legitimately making more money off of the freelance work, that's the point where you should start thinking about maybe doing this full time. But unfortunately, we don't live in a system that is kind to freelancers or kind to artists or kind to people who don't have the day jobs. You don't mention here if you're partnered or if you have support from family. Uh, You don't even really mention your age even. So I I don't really know what... You don't mention what your day job is either. So I I don't know. It could be... It's it's definitely different if you have like a a 40-hour-a-week job where you can leave everything at home uh, or if you have a gig that, or, or if you have outside support or someone who can help you out, that those kinds of things do make a difference, and they're things you should leverage. But as far as building your audience is concerned, do dope work, get the referrals out there, stuff you're comfortable working for free is something that's heavily debated in the freelance market. Yeah, um, a lot of people will say you get nowhere if you don't do the work for free first. That's a nice way to get exploited. Uh, what you should do is the stuff that you are happy to do for free, you can put out there for free to build yourself up. Right. We live in the social age. We've given a couple of uh, you know high-tech social bits of advice before, and this is going to be another one. Um, Instagram, Facebook, making these social media accounts for your business like uh, your graphic design business or maybe your own personal little art gallery, you know, and not um, not doing any clientele work, but showing examples, showing the the variety of looks you can create, showing what your stuff looks like so that people know that they can reach out to you through Messenger or whatever and be, hey, I really liked your 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 take on the milk carton. Can you uh, can we talk about you making something for me? And that way you're able to start the conversation and you know in, in a perfect world, do a great job and then this guy is another referral for you. Yep. And, and the one other piece of advice I will give before we close out is you might be a great artist and a great graphic designer. That doesn't necessarily mean you're great at business yet. Uh, I just went on a tirade about making sure your work is dope. Um, I'm also going to give just say very briefly, 
invest in figuring out how to do the business side of this. Yeah. Read the books, find the podcasts. Uh, I highly recommend, uh, he's kind of a douche and uh, you're going to have to weed through a lot of shitty stuff to get to the good stuff, but Tim Ferriss, uh, tim.blog is his website. You can go on there and just look through his business sections uh, you can pick up his books, but again, a lot of the information in them is outdated at this point. Some of them are, you know, 10 plus years old, but there's a lot of good articles he has on kind of setting small attainable goals for a business. Uh, I also kind of uh, recommend, there's, I'm doing the weightlifter thing again, a group called Juggernaut Training Systems, who are, they're, they're powerlifting, weightlifting gym, but they also talk a lot about, uh, how when they got started, they knew everything about the athleticism and the coaching. They didn't know shit about running a business. And a lot of their podcasts deal directly with how to run the business side of it, even though you're already versed in the art, the activity that you're passionate about, but you don't necessarily know the business side of it. Do that research. Learn about the business side of it. That's, that's going to be another job. It yeah. is. You've got your day job. You've got your art. Think about it as you're taking on another small job as you cultivate this business, as you build this audience, and as you figure out how to make this something sustainable and great. And go from there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, please, if we can help promote you or anything, send us your shit. We'll, like, if you got a website or anything, like, I'm a little disappointed you didn't just include that because we would have totally thrown it out there. We have no qualms about making sure everybody knows how dope your stuff is. Hell yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's it for me, Andy. You got anything else for them? Tony? No, I, I think I think you uh, gave Tony some really good points. I think I pointed him down a couple of avenues that he might have already known about. But if you didn't, then there's our there's there's my advice for you. I like this notion that no matter what the problem is, there is a weightlifting group you're aware of that <laughs> is, is 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 going through the same problem and has the solution. Oh god, it, the problem is this how fucking true it is. <laughs> oh god. Uh, but no. Uh, Seriously, Tony, you know, um, we hope that this has been helpful. If you are, we don't know what your social situation is. If there is a partner in your life, or it doesn't even have to be a partner, but, you know, maybe you can supplant this business administration knowledge through another person. I To, to bring it into um, filmmaking, my career, I know several two-person companies where it is somebody and then either their partner or a friend one of them's the cameraman the other one is the office manager who actually does the business stuff so if you get you know a uh, uh, big enough so to speak maybe that's a way to continue your upward momentum and really turn this into a sustainable career sure so uh tony we really hope this helped and for all of you else listening out there, if you have any relationship questions, we would absolutely love to hear them, and we would love to help work them through with you. You can email us at lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com. You can find us at lovehaterelationship.net, as well as on Twitter at LHRpod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. You're stealing my lines, son. I know. We're changing it up. Oh, I hate <laughs> I don't like change, Andy. <laughs> that said, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play. Play, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, and even TuneIn Radio. 
where you can listen along with my parents. <laughs> Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. I found out my dad listens to us. Hi. Like, Hello, Mr. Ruiz. That's just, it's just been delightful. So, yeah. And then uh, you can follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. And you can find me at JovoCop2113. That's J-O-V-O-C-O-P-2113. We need to have a talk about your Twitter handle someday. Uh. Uh, (laughs) And as always, everyone, thank you for listening, and please tell your enemies. (laughs) 